Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ingrid Cochran. I'm your host for today. Uh, along with my co-host, Matthew Portel, who is our Director of Education and Outreach. Hi, Matthew. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so today's conversation is going to be an examination of the civil rights movement. And I think um, often we have kind of one note when we look at the civil rights movement. So I hope that this conversation, especially given that so much time has passed and we can now look back on the on the movement and examine it in, um, with a more critical eye and also with the ability to, you know, reflect on the lessons learned. Uh, and we decided to have this um, discussion because of two reasons. First, we were already talking about intergenerational and historical trauma this month. And um, and then we also want to honor the memory of um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who um, we just had uh, the national holiday on Monday. And so I, I have spent uh, plenty of time talking about kind of the African-American experience. It's actually my, it's the root of, of a lot of my research. And I am an adjunct professor at Tennessee State University, which is a historically black um, college. And my focus there is um, I teach psychology of the black experience and developmental psychology. And so I really have taken the time to examine the history of um, the African-American experience and the civil rights movement. It, obviously it's a standout, but it is a part of a larger um you know, uh, experience for Black people in America that started with slavery. And then we have the emancipation and we go through reconstruction, which was kind of a exciting time for African-Americans, but quickly um, dissolved into a lot of poor outcomes because um, we tend to think uh, in terms of history as slavery being the low point in the African-American experience. And then after... Um, slaves were emancipated. Then we moved into this uh, time where it was nothing but expansion. And, and that's not true. Uh, right after um, slavery was ab abolished, there were uh, plenty of uh, systemic issues that were uh, impacting us as a country. So, um, you know, enslaved people were uneducated. They had no infrastructure. Um, and they definitely um, were in need of economic support and um, all of this in the landscape of, you know, the beliefs that the general public had around slaves and black people in general was um, overwhelmingly negative, despite there being really no basis for, for this belief. And so there were, you know, starvation, um, you know, disease during this time and the beginning of concerted efforts around domestic terrorism towards Black people in this country. Uh, and it's often called the Black Holocaust because um, this is where we begin to have to see whole towns um, being demolished like Rosewood and Tulsa 
And there was just a really uh, very clearly concerted effort to really um, ensure that um, former slaves did not experience prosperity in this country. Um, So, and the reconstruction wasn't all bad because this is where we get our first politicians. This is where we have a boom in black artisans. Um, obviously, um, this is where Black people had a, a, an increase in life expectancy coming out of, of slavery. So they had uh, somewhat better health conditions. Uh, and so after Reconstruction, um, then we move into Jim Crow. And this is what the civil rights movement ended. It ended um, Jim Crow policies um, and ensured that Black people specifically, but really all people were able to um, have the rights that at the time only really white men had. And so, and I said that to be very clear that, you know, white women also did not have um, many rights that we have today. And a lot of that, all of the, a lot of the gains that we've had um, as far as women in general is largely due to the civil rights movement as well. So, so I wanted to give some context uh, how we get to Jim Crow and the and the need for the civil rights movement. Um, and I also want to tie this in with the conversations we've had um, in the past around historical trauma and how this process, slavery, um, reconstruction, and all of the um, poor conditions that uh, African-Americans have faced uh, in this time has resulted in... Um, a lot of the negative um, outcomes that we associate with race, like poor health, poverty, economic instability, all of this is uh, very clearly rooted in this history and the conditions that are made. And so I say all this to say that, you know, um, all of the civil rights activists that put their lives on the line to ensure a better future for um, Black children and Black families um, really were able to get to the point where we were breaking cycles around being second-class citizens. It's an extremely important movement, uh, along with the fact that it also is a playbook that shows how you can get things done as an activist, um, large-scale change that many people are still using today. So I want to let, let's have a conversation, Matthew, about the impact of the civil rights movement and the work of uh, Martin Luther King on us personally. And obviously we were not living during the civil rights movement. Well, maybe it's not obvious, but <laughs> we weren't living during the civil rights movement. And so it's good to think through you know, intergenerationally, how has the civil rights movement impacted us as individuals and our families? I mean, I, I, I thought a lot about this when you, we talked about the subject and I, and, and, we ha- I have to, right? I have to say, and I have to reflect, how would it affect my family? And I think um, it affected my family in ways that I think they didn't even realize that the implicitness of um, what they perceived and told me was positive. I also could see in their everyday life that they also displayed that there was some negative to the rights. And that is hard to grapple with, right? And it makes me think even going back to my grandfather, um, who was a farmer uh, in Southern Illinois, and 
he had a farmhand um, that he worked with. And our, as his grandchild and my, and my mom, I knew him very well. But I remember this imbalance of power and the way in which this man interacted with my grandfather. And my grandfather was extremely racist, extremely racist. Um, but yet there was this there was this relationship, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, it was just a relationship that as a kid I remember watching. And I think that um, I even start digging deeper of their relationships. And I will tell you that later on in life, I actually reconnected with his family. Um, and it was interesting to hear their perspective because they only saw the positive of the situation. Um, and it was interesting. But I even go to my father who was in Vietnam War during the midst of the height of, of what we now know as modern day civil rights movement. And I remember talking to him and there was a connection for my father when he came back from Vietnam, because in that moment he was as hated, so he thought and felt, as a lot of people undergoing, uh, fighting for civil rights. He was spit upon, he was yelled at, he was called a murderer. Um, and that impacted him, not just because he was wounded, but be also because he experienced that. And uh, we've had conversations about, Dad, you realize at that same time, that the African-American communities had been dealing with that same experience for literally centuries. And it was kind of boiling around and he was able to make that connection. But I will have to be brutally honest and say, um, I lived a very naive biased life as a kid. We were, I was raised in a white community. Um, we had very little interactions with people of color. Um, there was always a undertone of bias that existed. Um, and it wasn't until I was older that I had to be able to face those. Um, and I, I've talked about it on this before, um, but it wasn't until I stepped on the campus at TSU um, that I realized how much racism I had, how much bias I had, how I had painted a picture of a community and an amazing culture with a very narrow brush. Um, and still I'm on that journey, right? So I think how all of these historical, uh, all the implications of all these historical experiences come down to me as an individual, looking at that socio-ecological uh, socio model and thinking about the big picture and how all of those systems come right down to me. And it has impacted us greatly. Um, but I will say it is my hope that I'm in the cycle, the, the chain-breaking cycle of what has been thought and passed through my generations. Um, and that is of bias and even racism. And that isn't speaking poorly to my parents, um, but it is what it is. And to know I, ex I, had those, I had ideas that were absolutely rooted in white supremacy um, are key, but it impacted all of us, right? And um, I, I went through my genealogy. Uh, we talked about it last week. And I realized I have a lot of genealogy in the South and I haven't dug through that. Were they part of the oppressive practices? Did they own slaves? Did like, I don't know any of that. Um, and I think that that absolutely, whether they did or not still impacts me as an individual um, through the historical context. And what about you? I mean, we talked last week, you know, that genealogy thing really opened my eyes in grid where I was able to trace my ancestors back to 1600s. 
Um, and yet there's a finite line um, and this movement um, really was about that of how do we gain the rights and accessibility and being humanized. So how, how do you feel it impacted you and your family? It's definitely a mixed bag. I, when I was younger and like you said, naive, I thought of the civil rights movement in kind of this fairy tale way that, um, that these activists put their lives on the line and they overcame. And they did. I'm, I'm not saying that that's not what happened. But as we pull back and we look at the big picture, um, you know, then the question becomes, you know, where are we now? And did the civil rights movement accomplish what it wanted to accomplish as we move into the future? And so that's where things get a little gray. But when I think about my family, you know, especially my my parents and grandparents, um, the positive of of the civil rights movement was the pride that they felt, um, and and that is something that's interesting. You know, when we think about black pride, this is what we call it. You know, um, when you think about James Brown saying, "I'm black and I'm proud." You know, this is something that we had to cultivate and grow um, because we had to do it in a way that was a clear pushback against the overarching narrative that Black people were um, uneducated or savage or uncivilized and that our um, our way of being was supposed to be slaves and that, um, and this is the reason why, you know, all of these you know, negative outcomes were plaguing the community. And I bought that. Um, and and this is where we get in kind of these, you know, res- respectability politics. If you act a certain way, and, and this is what we call blaming the victim, right? Uh, and so I bought into that and so did my family um, in order for us to be successful as far as my family was concerned, was that we needed to talk white. We needed to dress white. We needed to... Um, you know, assimilate. Um, and we had absolutely no connection with um, kind of our Africanness, right? And so um, as I got older and I learned more about the world, um, I was able to to reflect on how uh, that made me feel as a child. I was very irritated with this idea that I had to um, talk white, act white, to be successful, professional, and all these other. um, But uh, I've come to a place of healing with that because when when I uh, thought more about it, I was able to understand that they were doing the best they could at the time. And I don't know anything about an environment where racism is so hostile that, you know, people are being lynched and you can't be out after a certain time at night and um, you can't look at certain people in the eye or, you know, these types of social rules that, they, that people had to go through during Jim Crow. Um, so, you know, I'm glad that they survived um, mentally intact <laughs> and, um, and they did the best they could. Um, and I guess when I think about the forgiveness aspect of it, um, because I do feel like intergenerational transmission and kind of how we racially socialize children 
is a double edge as we are trying to prepare them to be in a racist society. We also, you know, take away a bit of that pride I was talking about before, pride in the way that their skin looks and pride in their history. Um, and so I think that's something that we need to think about as far as the future. How do we instill pride into not just young Black children, but, you know, all children, whatever their background may be, how do we celebrate each each other's backgrounds? And I think that honoring um, Dr. King is a good step in that, and I'm glad we do it. And I also believe that it's okay for us to also have a critical eye. So there, when we look at the civil rights movement, um, I often think about what's what was lost in that as well. And so and we'll talk about that later, but this is a little bit of a, a controversial issue, but there is loss in, in after the civil rights movement as well. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's something that is that once we get into it's thought provoking, right? It's like, uh, and especially coming, I for those of you who may have never seen me, I'm white male, FYI. Um, so from my perspective, it makes me think deeper, right? And I think all of this, this whole journey of uh, of of educating myself, because like many. Um, not just not just in the white community, but I've learned even in the black community, uh, in schools, true black history isn't taught. True African American history isn't taught, right? And um, I think better now than in the past. But when I was in school, it was Jackie Robinson. It may have been, um, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King. It, it was like these basic, iconic people, but it was sold in a different way, where. It wasn't the true of what happened and the the discrimination that they had to endure and 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 the pro, even after the fact when they integrated and, and it made me even think I had a conversation with a man about the Jackie Robinson entering baseball right and it was like that wasn't something that he did it was something that was allowed by the white majority of baseball to allow him to come in right now of course bridging that is so hard but it was still a power imbalance right and he broke a bunch of opportunity um and he did an amazing job as an athlete and as a human but we still have to be real about things we can't candy coat i, I love um i think i shouldn't say i love i'm entertained by um all of the posts i see on social media on martin luther king day i should say um because it is the time in which you see all people posting quotes and I really do look at those quotes and I've learned that there is a division of people who are quoting and intent on quoting, right? And, and from my perspective, and, and I think that we have to see Dr. Martin Luther King for who he was. He was just, he was disruptive, right? He wasn't a, always just a peaceful, smiling, go along with, I'm going to change things. He wanted to disrupt and he said disruptive things and he did cause controversy. And he did say there are times in which we do have to fight back, right? But there's this painted picture, and I think it goes into what you said, Ingrid, of we that there's a conformity that must occur in order for people to be heard. And a lot of times that conformity falls back on the majority. You have to do this, act this way. I even think in recent times. Um, when people were protesting and how people were talking about the protests and how they were uncivilized or they were savage or they were thugs. 
it's the same tactics that were used during Dr. Martin Luther King's era that are still being used today. Yeah, and you bring up, you know, even if we think about the civil rights movement and kind of compare it to, uh, and the trauma that was experienced in the civil rights movement and kind of compare it to, um, you know, the the reaction to George Floyd's death, um, you know, we one of the reasons why um, George Floyd's murder really impacted people is because of the visual, because it was um, recorded and it was on television and it was on social media. You saw it all the time. And um, and that impact, you know, really moved people to action. But you have to think, you know, during the civil rights movement, um, we were just barely televising things, but um, we were in a in a time where, kind of, for the first time, um, our our media was far reaching, and so people were watching us in America, where we have lynchings and bombing of churches and the killing of black children, and people being uh, attacked by dogs and sprayed with water hoses. It was a traumatic series of events over a long period of time that people were glued to the TV watching. And what I think about is all of this secondary trauma, vicarious trauma that comes from that, from everyone, that really allowed for the movement to happen in the first place. And it was actually a tactic, you know, that we want to be televised, that we want the world to see what's going on in America. And, and I think that that exposure to those traumatic experiences really brought to focus the humanity of African-Americans in this country and that um, we cannot um, say that we are about freedom if we act in this way, especially over something as trivial as skin color. Um, when you really think about it, I mean, it's, um, it's skin color and, and with a mix of, uh, tribalism. So, uh, just, just one way to find something that divides us that we can use to prop up one group over another. Uh, and, um, the tactic of having it front and center and for the world to see, um, did drive, um, the response to kind of the Jim Crow period and um, and ignited the civil rights movement and and really bolstered uh, participation in it from everyone. So, um, and this is what made the movement successful. And it also is a reflection of how those traumatic experiences and people being kind of traumatized by the state of, of African-Americans really, um, you know, pushed us into another way of being. And I've talked about that before, about how trauma has the ability to kind of push us forward um, as, as a species, as a, as, a, as a people. And so this is an example of, of that. And George Floyd was also an example of that. His, well, his, his murder being um, kind of all over and everywhere. So, um, and it moved people to action. And I think that if when when we get to the point where we are even further out from the civil rights movement and we can look back and um what we'll what we'll find is that this movement 
um, because of the horror of Jim Crow South, um, really pushed us forward in all types of discrimination. So disability, gender, obviously race, uh, poverty, which is what uh, Martin Luther King was uh, was about to tackle next, which is um, wage theft. Um, but it, it really helped us to make a leap. What I don't like about the civil rights movement is how people want to use it as a way to say racism is solved. Um, that we've we've gone through the civil rights movement and now we we're we're you know we're going with mission accomplished on racism, and so I, I do think it was a it was a level up in the work, but definitely not the end game. And I I, I can't wait till we get back from the break to talk about those and so much more about your ideas and and our conversation around you know, what's the downside to some of the things that happen and what's the upside, especially when we talk about desegregation and and some of these victories that may not have a victorious other side. But I do agree, Ingrid, that um, the, the battle is one flag that has been metaphorically put into the ground by the powers that be of saying racism is over. I think that just tells that the work still is continuing, right? And I think when you say the impact of the video on George Floyd, I think that access to seeing, right, what racism looks like, because now those videos, not just the death of George Floyd, but racism in action is rampant because now there are tools in everyone's hands to see it. And it's only getting to the point where we have to continue to have conversations because the frequency in which we're seeing these videos and people reacting and people um, accusing others of doing things or not belonging um, is only becoming heightened. And so, um, yeah, it's it's really important that we see not just what's happening in the past, but what's happening now and hopefully into the future. Yeah, I think that is an important point. We want to be able to clearly um, look at the civil rights movement in, in reflection on today. Um, and be able to be very clear about our progress forward. Because like I said before, the civil rights movement was um, a movement. It had strategy. Um, and now we need to think through how, what does that look like moving forward so that we can continue it? So when we have another um, issue and there will be another um, issue like George Floyd, um, that we have clear ways to respond and feel as though we are able to move the needle, um, to have action, not just protest, but also action, because that's what the civil rights movement showed us, not just protest, but action, coordinated action that um, had a very clear end game. Um, and I think that we are we can accomplish that within my lifetime. So much has already happened. And so we will continue this conversation after our break and we'll come back and we'll talk more about what does the trauma and triumph look like when we look at the civil rights movement. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests 
will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866 472 5791. That's 866 472 5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. I am Ingrid Cochran, your host. Um, the first half of our discussion was really focused on how um, the civil rights movement have impacted myself and Matthew, um, um, especially our, our families, and really how the uh, civil rights movement is um, encapsulates both healing and trauma. And so we're going to continue that conversation um, as we kind of look at the civil rights movement through um, a trauma lens, but also um, include the kind of the lessons that we've learned since then when it comes to the science and the um, overall uh, changes that have happened in society since the civil rights movement. Uh, one thing that me and Matthew have talked about before is kind of the, the downside of the civil rights movement and how um, there was some residual trauma after the movement. Um, and it made me think about one of our first conversations that we had. Um, Matthew, do you kind of remember <laughs> how that went? I do remember that. And again, another thought provoking conversation <laughs> that you and I engaged in way before we, before we were at Paces, but, um, it was really about the integration of schools, mm-hmm. Um, because you, we were having a conversation and it was about the historical trauma as it relates to education. And I remember you saying, you know, desegregation wasn't necessarily beneficial, um, for the African-American community. And so Mm -hmm. I, I would love for you to expand on that because when I, when you began to talk through it, 
it made really good sense. And then, of course, I started digging in, um, going, okay, I want to know more about this. But but yeah. talk, share your thoughts again. So, yeah, again, not always a popular uh, um, opinion, but prior to even even in um, Jim Crow um, era, um, they there were very clearly defined um, prosperous communities um, that were kind of, you know, all black towns and communities. And it was largely due to segregation, you know, being pushed into certain areas or um, already predefined um, areas based on uh, kind of the, the, the relic of, of slavery. So as slaves were um, emancipated, they often stayed with their former masters uh, and began sharecropping. Uh, and so, especially in those larger plantation-like areas, there was essentially black parts of the plantation, black parts of town where um, you you see as time goes on after slavery, these little um, areas that are mostly mostly black, they begin to thrive. And so we have examples of this uh, throughout history with um, Tulsa, Oklahoma being a, a, a an example, kind of um, when we think of Black Wall Street, the a Black area that's extremely prosperous um, in Oklahoma that was essentially bombed um, as resentment grew between the, um, the Black residents and the white residents around this prosperity. Uh, but even if we, even if all black towns and cities weren't like Black Wall Street, what they did have is black teachers, black doctors, um, black businesses, and because of segregation, um, those people in the community uh, ultimately, you know, put money, th- the money that they did have, or even just the uh, cooperation and collaboration that they could provide back into their community. As we uh, go through a process of segregation, we begin to see the uh, dismantling of black businesses and the dismantling of black schools. We see less black teachers, um, less black institutions because those institutions um, um, during integration are slowly um, dismantled by um, the mainstream. So bought and sold, um, very clear tactics. If we think about in today's um, in today's terms of aggressive gentrification, where people live in these neighborhoods that developers want, and they just harass them until they sell them the house, and that's kind of how the world was during inter- integration, because those black institutions were slowly dismantled by the mainstream. Uh, and with the purpose of being, um, you know, the the go to if you if you have a a, a black business that is, um, you know, a very clearly a competitor and you have the means and the power to dismantle them, then you will. And this is what happened in our society, because we attempted to kind of say, OK, we're, we're done with racism. Everybody's the same. We have all these these laws that say so these policies that say so. Um, but we have not addressed the root cause, which is this need for power and domination over others. And so um, there was a kind of a stripping away of protection from the Black community, which has been essentially 
de- um, you know, disenfranchised since the civil rights movement, so much so that right after the civil rights movement, we move into the space of the war on drugs and a continuing disintegration of the of the black family um, through the through the lens of um, over policing and um, and definitely um, basically in divesting from communities, so um, not giving the same access to care and uh, and the war on drugs, the crack epidemic, and the HIV/AIDS epidemic really ravaged. The, the black community um, pretty much right after um, the civil rights movement. And um, that, you know, that protection that the black community had before was, was worn away and led to kind of the first time since slavery where there was a dip in life expectancy um, and other health outcomes because of the conditions were, were pretty bad uh, across the country in that time frame. So I, and I mean, where can we even get started when it comes to education, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you said too, and and I think thinking about when when that in the '80s and the war on drugs, that increase of incarceration rates and the disproportionality, direct alignment, and we're still in that disproportionality of incarceration. And I think, you know, now we we have um, epi- we have drug epidemics, we have drug crisis. Um, it's amazing just how the the use of words can change depending on who's impacted. And, and I think about the opioid crisis that we hear about all the time, right? And so when you're talking about education, I mean, I was blown away by when I started looking into the impact, the unforeseen or potentially foreseen, I guess, because it was done, right? Um, impact of integration on the teaching force, right? that prior there were 17 states who had segregated system prior to brown versus board of education and at that time about 50 percent of the teaching force was black after and up to current day we now only have between seven and ten percent of our teachers who are uh african-american or of color right that's just not black and african-american that's of color right and 11 percent of our principals nationwide in public ed um, are of color. And that to me was something that until I didn't, I sat down to begin to really understand that when the desegregation happened, the black schools were then integrated and the, the African-American black teachers were then pushed out. They weren't, they weren't brought into that integration. And you made me really think in that first conversation too, the exposure of children to overt or covert racism at that point, because there were kids being integrated into classrooms where teachers did not want, or even if they did want integration, that white supremacist culture and society that has ravaged our country for centuries is still a part. And I will say it's still a part today, Um, whether it's implicitly or not, right? Um, and so I, I never really thought about those implications until you brought that up. And we're still, and I say we, cause I still find myself in education, even though I'm not in education. Um, we still are, it's like this big mystery on where did all the teachers of color go, but it isn't a mystery. All we have to do is look at the historical context and it's right there to show us what happened. 
Yeah. And it's a reflection of how Black institutions, whatever they were, um, were then held up to a standard that uh, white institutions had. So now I'm going to fire a lot of teachers because they don't meet the criteria that these the, the standards that we have around um, education to be hired. The reason why they don't meet that criteria is because of the system that was in place in, you know, during the Jim Crow era that, you know, didn't allow for them to be as educated or if they were educated, it wasn't formal. It wasn't documented um, because of the difference in treatment. And this allowed for many um, black practitioners, artisans, um, any, really any um, sector, there was a huge shedding of, of them because um, they were then being kind of integrated into um, the already established white system. Whereas before, you know, black communities kind of made up their own standards because there was, there were no um, requirements that they were held up to because essentially no one cared about their communities. Um, and so there was, you know, a, there were many negative things, negative outcomes that came from um, the civil rights movement and integration. Education is a huge example of that, but there's also housing. Um, as housing became integrated and Black people moved into um, areas that were extremely hostile to them, um, housing discrimination became a real issue. So yes, now Black people have the ability to live where they want, but even if they can get the loan or you know get uh, approved for the rental contract, then their neighbors were literally running them out of the of the community. Um, you know, very aggressive, overt racism if a black person moved into um, into a neighborhood. Uh, and so this is a, another example, you know, beyond schools, because and it makes me think about um, a, an interaction that I had with a woman who was in Texas where she um, kind of had an epiphany around you know, black children being um, integrated after the civil rights movement or during the civil rights movement. And, you know, she was like, oh, do you you think those black children were traumatized? And I was like, yeah, of course. They had to walk through people protesting outside and the level of racial bullying that they had to deal with when schools were first integrated, I'm sure was uh, staggering. Um, and so we think about things like the civil rights movement as um, kind of a, a shining star in our race relations. And it is, but unfortunately it has, a, there were a lot of ramifications from that movement that um, really upheld white supremacy um, through the process and, and really um, kind of disenfranchised black communities and made things harder for, for, Black people, especially um, working um, Black people who, you know, they were still subject to wage theft. They were still subject to uh, discrimination in hiring practices, still subject to discrimination in housing. But they could not, they really would have to do their due diligence and be able to prove it because um, we have had the civil rights movement and your rights are guaranteed according to policy. But the action was extremely, um, you know, 
overt racism that they experience in in a in a variety of settings in their in integrated neighborhoods in the suburbs in their integrated public schools in their uh, integrated uh public universities um there was a huge um wave of racial bullying and microaggressions that started after this um and not to mention like i said the disenfranchised the 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 way that Black families were negatively impacted um, with so much, um, so many, you know, experiencing economic instability and um, so many jobs lost, um, that you then have this uh, period that comes right after of, of the war on drugs that is devastating to the Black community. Absolutely devastating. And I think if, if, if if conversations aren't willing to to talk about the current state right of where african american communities are based off of those historical then we're missing the mark right and i even think about ingrid those the things that we're talking about happened in our parents lifetime your parents your parents and my parents were alive when all of those things were happening we were alive during the just say no to drugs. I remember the green t-shirts. I remember the commercial. I mean, I do. And this isn't far from, we've come far, but we're not far removed from where the movement that we're talking about. So what do you see? What do you see the, the civil rights movement moving into the future? What do you see voice and, and, and what you talked about activism, right? Like the the lunch counter protests that happened here in our city in Nashville, which were historic, the the boycotts that occurred that got changed to actually happen. What do you see that looking like in the future as we continue to fight for um, the rights, not just to be to be honest of our African American community, but so many communities that are in that space of just needing some basic human rights, if we're talking about LBGTQ communities, what do you see the next organization or or strategy to be? So one thing that's pretty apparent um, in the civil rights movement and today is the importance of youth voice and engagement. Um, We often think about the civil rights movement and we remember kind of the icons. They were mostly older Black gentlemen who were... um, um, at the head of this movement. Um, I'm not gonna get into the the fact that we kind of uh, left the black women in the movement in the shadows with the exception of a few. But when it comes down to, you know, people putting their lives and bodies on the line, it was overwhelmingly young people. Um, overwhelmingly young people sitting at those lunch counters and um, putting their physical selves on the line. And they did so because they were they were the most aware of the impact, right? And when I say by most aware, we we tend to think of young people as not being the most aware of, of you know systems. They may not be aware of systems, but they're aware of impact. So every time we have an economic downturn, who is most impacted? Younger people. Um, every time we have issues of discrimination. Um, issues around uh, working and things of this nature, they're a vulnerable group. And so they are very much aware that they are being discriminated against or they are not um, able to access 
all the good things about being in um, this, you know, in in America, right? All the good things that we associate with America, they're not getting. And they're very aware of that. And that is true during the civil rights movement. That's also true today, where they are striving for, um, you know, a voice to be heard, to be a part of the conversation. They're often ignored in the decision-making process, even when people are making decisions for them specifically. So Youth Voice and organizations that support Youth Voice and help youth understand the systems that are impacting their lives um, are going to be essential in in the movement moving forward. And um, and then beyond that, when we look at what's actually needed, we have to be able to say very clearly that you know it sounds very cheesy, but um, America with this race issue has cut off its nose to spite its face. And so at the bo- at the end of the day, the, the bottom line matters. We are not able to be a, a superpower in, in, in the world if we aren't able to deal with our race issues. And this is relevant because this is the reason why the civil rights movement was supported because America at the time was considered kind of the world police. And, um, it was, you know, the civil rights movement the, the, or its ability to be televised was used as a tool that then had other countries saying, well, you can't police us. You got stuff to deal with in your own backyard. Uh, and so it, that means, you know, the lack of innovation, you know, we've talked about it before. If the cure for cancer was in a young black child's mind, would it make it out? You know, because if they're being educated within a racist system, dealing with microaggressions, um, living in different conditions based on skin color, uh, these are the types of things that um, prevent us from prospering as a country um, because we're too busy infighting. We're too busy creating policies that marginalize people because we want to ensure that a, a certain group um, hoards resources and, and things of that nature. It is that lack of innovation and the inability for us to act collectively is unless we're, you know, under threat of attack, <laughs> then um, because that's when we, we tend to come together. Um, but that inability to um, deal with racism in a real way is really negatively impacting us as a country, as a whole. I mean, education is a prime example of that as we we divested from public education as schools were integrated. There was a white flight into private schools. I was going to bring that up um, because after our conversation, and that was in 2019, I think, Ingrid, when we first had that conversation, it was a long time ago. I actually went and started looking at the um, opening of private schools uh, within Middle Tennessee, and there were a lot of correlations of when private uh, schools were opening was similarly aligned to the desegregation of of schools, and that that blew my mind. And I even think about um, I'm a huge soccer fan, and even this year, Ingrid, um, one of the reporters from Iran asked the question you just said because um, someone on the staff removed a part of the Iranian flag um, as a protest to what's happening there to their civil rights issue, which is, that's that's a global issue, right? 
but the 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 reporter asked one of the soccer players how do you feel to have the right to do that when you're dealing with racial issues in your own country right and that again is times we have to face even today that the world is still seeing the processes and and uh and systems that are in place but i agree with you the youth and i was hoping when you said this is going to be a little silly i was really hoping you were going to start singing whitney houston's children are the future um, but you didn't and i will not either um, but you. i agree <laughs> <laughs> i agree that our kids are so conscious they're aware they're you, they're willing to use their voice they're willing to stand up for their rights and not just theirs but others because so many kids have platforms now where they have voice. Some of them may not be using them effectively, if any child, right? But there's platforms now that kids are using their voice. And I, too, agree that they know what's they, – they're seeing the, the, the oppressive nature of a lot of what's happening, and they're not afraid to call it out. Yeah, and, and that's the way that it's always been, from Vietnam protesters to, you know, the, the – the uh, civil rights movement and, and people putting themselves on the, on the countertops. Like that's the way it's always, it's always been youth voice. Um, and so I think what we're saying is that we believe that the children are the future. <laughs> but I, I think this, I think this conversation has, you know, really helped um, me to think through, you know, the benefits of the civil rights movement and and where we go from here. I hope this has done the same thing for our for our audience. And um I think that the that the gifts that we have, we don't want to overlook them. You know, so much was given and and policy matters and policy definitely matters. And so now we need to address all the other aspects of of uh racism, which is our beliefs and values and um paying reparations so we can change what our communities look like and our institutions look like. So it's definitely not, um, you know, mission accomplished on racism. The civil rights movement was not that, but it, it's definitely given us a playbook. Um, and it's also kind of uncovered kind of the, um, you know, the nature of the beast that even when we put policies in place, that without the changing of hearts and minds, all things can be undone. So I think that's a good place for us to stop. And um, please join us next week as we continue this conversation around historical trauma, intergenerational transmission. And thank you for being with us this week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.